Guys, what's the crack? I've got a great guest with me today, um, Con Stevenson. I've met Con through a Telegram Bitcoin group, and um, he's very knowledgeable on Bitcoin. I'm looking forward to him educating me a little bit further on it. So, Con, you're very welcome this morning. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah. So, I suppose give give us a little bit of an int introduction into yourself and your background, please, before we get cracking. Uh, well probably be interested to hear that I actually don't come from any sort of financial or economic or computer science or anything there any background like that. I actually background sports science so um I done I done sports science degree over in Liverpool and Preston so no real um economic background no cryptography background nothing like that there so which you know looking back at hindsight probably a blessing because a lot of people I know from an economic background or you know the, the struggle to get bitcoin and um, they come down that uh finance background or economics background or and even people from you know computer science the, the development side can see it for the tech and sometimes get sucked down that and they, then they don't see it from the economic side so uh, a lot of those a lot of those people who come up you know for 10 20 15 you know 30 years whatever it is coming from those backgrounds find it hard to unlearn a lot of things to to understand bitcoin from from the ground up so i can say this myself fortunate that i had absolutely no idea of any of that stuff coming into it so i think that can actually be a real advantage when you don't have um any of those traditional finance background or anything like that there because you're able to just see bitcoin basically from first principles and understand from the ground up so yeah my background is sports science um, and then i found bitcoin just uh, the way most people do, see number go up, think put put some money in it, hope it'll go up and they can get rich. Um, and yeah, so I went I went down a, a journey of looking for in, investments and stocks and everything, and I end up coming across Bitcoin, a little section in a book called Alternative Investments, and one 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 part of that section was cryptocurrency, and the first one I mentioned was Bitcoin. That's how I first came about. It. I was back in 2017. It's actually a funny story because my the way my final year worked out, I actually had um I had no final exams. So I had um it was module based final year. So um the way it worked out as I'd actually I'd work my final year in uni is probably the only year I actually really worked hard <laughs> at university up until then I probably just sort of breezed through um focusing on sport and um having the crack. <laughs> And uh, so put my head down final year, decided to get on work done. By the time early April had come around, I'd already paid all the rent for final term. Didn't have much money left and found myself sat in Preston. Uh, right, right, right around the corner from the from the university library with no nothing to do. I had a practical exam at the end of May. So I had to wait in Preston for you know six weeks for this practical exam. Um, but other than that, I had all my work done. I knew what my grade was going to be. I just had to basically turn up for this practical exam. So I was sat in pressing, nothing to do for six weeks. So I decided, okay, I'll, I'll put my time to use. And I was already burnt out on sports, so it wasn't going to be sport related. So I decided to go around to the, the library and think, okay, well, I've six weeks, I can crunch a, something that's going to be useful. So I thought, right, well, once I finish uni, I'm probably going to go into full-time work. So what do I need to know about? And I thought, right. 
well, I'll figure out something to do with money or finance or investments or something. So first book I ended up picking up was The Intelligent Investor uh, by Benjamin Graham with commentary from Warren Buffett. And I ended up picking that up, reading it. And the first, the first thing that struck me was the the miracle of, of compound interest. And I thought, okay, makes sense. Put money away, put a little bit of money away and let compound interest do the work in 30, 40 years time, you'll have a nice pot for retirement. What do you do yourself with a channel and, you know, educating people plan for retirement and stuff. So that, that was my thought process. Um, I was really sucked down the value investing and picking picking stocks that you want to hold for 30 years, et cetera. So I fell into that there, um, opened up a trading 212 account, uh, put some big tax stocks the way most people do. Again, at this point, I was mid-20, mid-20, so I was willing to take on a bit more risk. So I had no, at this point, I had no gold, no silver. It was just pure tax stocks, pure um, risky bets. Um, and then, like I said, I came to that there section in one in, in one book that focused on alternative um, investments, put a little bit into Bitcoin, didn't even think about it. And it was just Bitcoin because it was the biggest, I thought it was the biggest. So put it into Bitcoin. Um, and then actually after I finished uni, I went traveling. I'm traveling Southeast Asia and uh, made my way through Southeast Asia. Didn't check any of my investments at all. And it was actually two things happened in Cambodia on the, I was finishing off two, the last two days in Cambodia and then I was heading to Bangkok to fly back home. So this is my last three days. All my money was pretty much exhausted. And uh, I, know, I noticed something, I noticed someone was talking about Bitcoin in a hostel or something. And I checked the price and the price had skyrocketed way up the 20k or whatever it was, the, the peak in 2017 and came right the whole way back. So I had missed that whole entire run-up travel in Southeast Asia, Yeah, which, which looking back now was a blessing because yeah. um, I knew nothing about it. So I probably would, the first 100% rise I probably would have sold. The next 100% rise I probably would have bought back in. The next, once I went to the peak, I probably would have went all in. And then when it dropped like a stone, I probably would have sold and lost. How, I don't know how much so because I, I would have known nothing about it I would have been using emotion I would have been you know caught up in the whole thrill of it so I count that as a blessing that I missed that whole thing and once I seen that it actually came back down and sort of started to level out I was like right well it hasn't met the zero so I'll just you know I'll let it trickle on and you know maybe sometime I'll, I'll read in that what it actually is because I had no idea what it was um, and the next the following day actually another thing which stuck to me was um, I went into a shop. It was like a little Seven Eleven to it was basically my last last few quid. And I was um, <clears throat> I was buying some some supplies for the the long bus journey back to Bangkok to get the flight. And I opened up opened up my wallet, and I still actually still have. I can go and get them here if you want. But um, opened up my wallet, and I had Cambodian real and US dollars. I had two US dollars left, and a whole bunch of Cambodian real. In Cambodia, they have Cambodian real, but they also accept US dollar. And the stuff that I paid for probably came to about $2.20. So I opened it up, only had $2. So I went to pay in Cambodian real. I took out all the Cambodian real to pay for this place. And the shopkeeper, when he went open, well, he seen the $2. And he says, you know, I'll take, I'll take the $2. Give me the $2 and a little bit of Cambodian real. I, I was like, yeah, okay, give him the Give him the two dollars, give him a little bit of Cambodian real, but I was confused. I was like, 
I was like, why why would he want why would he not want the currency of his own of his own country? Like you know, Cambodian real is the the currency of Cambodia. Why would he not want just all Cambodian real? Because I it never occurred to me that you know about currency strengths versus other current you know versus other nation currencies. And it was just that was something that sucked me on a flight and way home. Uh, I just okay, so I have to figure out what this thing Bitcoin is. I have to figure out why people would want US dollar over their own currency. And so, basically, at home, um, look for a job, find a job, and then basically any any spare time I got, I was sort of going down looking more into investments, into stocks, a little bit into Bitcoin, into all. The, so it was always on my mind. I was any time I got some spare time, I was always looking into these things, and I sort of trickled along through 2018, 2019, just intermittently trying to figure these things out. But then COVID happened. COVID happened, and I think it was Italy had locked down, um, United States, and over here we're getting the first cases. And it looked like the whole world was going to shut down. So the first thing I thought was, well, there's going to be a market crash. There's going to be a market crash across everything because when you shut down everything, the economy grinds to standstill and everybody's, um, everything's going to going to come down and i thought you know for all the content that i've been reading and um look, uh listen to videos and podcasts and all everybody always talks about the opportunity the ones that got the opportunity during the financial crisis in 2009 those are the big winners the ones that when everybody was running away from the fire they ran towards it they ran to get the scoop up the real estate the the stocks Etc. That were a huge discount and that paid dividends. You know, ten years later. So I was thinking, right, this is this is my opportunity. I'm young. I can get things at a discount here. I can hold them for 20, 30 years, and get and it'll be a real payoff down the line. So I separated everything into basically came down to one of three decisions. I had my Bitcoin pot here. I had tax stocks and stuff, um, and I also had the option of maybe I sell everything and maybe try and buy uh, a property to rent out or something. And so the first thing I looked into because it was probably my smallest part was the Bitcoin. So I was like, okay, I'll look into Bitcoin. I'll look into, I'll probably skim, skim over first and uh, probably won't think of it too much after. I went deep down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. By this stage, um, we were in lockdown. I was furloughed from the job, so I had loads of time. Hans, everybody was sitting at home, not doing anything. So basically getting up in the morning, going down the rabbit hole, basically full time. Every single day, I was just down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And the longer I spent in the, in the Bitcoin rabbit hole, the more it made sense to allocate pretty much most of it. Um, my thought process was most of it in Bitcoin and maybe the rest in gold and silver as if Bitcoin fails, gold's going to do well. That was my thought process. But everything else just seems so... The more I spent down about the Bitcoin rabbit hole, everything, the more everything else seems so risky. Um, so I ended up doing that. I ended up just going pretty much 60% Bitcoin. The rest was in gold and silver ETFs. Um, and then I, the, the longer I spent down the rabbit hole, still a few tax stocks, but the longer I spent down the rabbit hole, it was just a slow bleeding of these ETFs and tax stocks into Bitcoin every every now and again. Um, if there was a spike in gold or silver, I would just I was cashing out and putting into Bitcoin, sp- spend more time down the rabbit hole, allocate more to Bitcoin, spend more time down the rabbit hole, allocate more to Bitcoin. I actually got very fortunate I cashed out at the 
the gold and silver peaks in, in August that year. Got out of them, into Bitcoin, sold all my tax stocks into Bitcoin. Everything was just in Bitcoin. I, at this point, I was 100% Bitcoin. So I owned my house, I owned Bitcoin, and I don't, didn't own anything else. And that's the way it still is now. Uh, don't see any value in anything long-term. Um, short-term, who knows? But um, long-term, only Bitcoin. And that's that's how I got down, deep down the rabbit hole. Deadly, man. That's an awesome story. A uh, couple of great things there, like compound interest for me like that. I read a book on how to be a millionaire in my early 20s because it came from a poor family. And it seems so so easy. Just find something you can compound. Uh, and and just be patient and you too will be a seven, worth seven figures if you just use this vehicle um with yeah, the- one 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 book that really i remember really stuck with me was rich dad poor dad yeah and, uh, it, it was like the way the way it's because the way it stuck with me is because it was one of the one of the first two or three books that i read over in pressing i read Daniel Graham's Italian Vest was hard to get through because you're coming th- you don't know anything about it you're coming yeah. from a novice perspective but rich dad put out the bed lays it's like a story yeah and I, I it's it's what was it early 90s or something that was written so it, it but it still holds up today even as a story um it, it's just even though the the investment philosophy might not be too important going through the field, I think i'd still recommend that anyone's a brilliant read yeah the, the principles are still hold true on it although it's he focuses on, on on property investing the principles all still hold true yeah um and then the other thing you mentioned about losing your wallet being the best thing when i'm consulting with people i'm like literally best thing you can do is lose this forget about it and have a look at it in about five years and if you can lose it for 10 years it'd probably be better for you um <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny and when we're newer we don't realize that and we think that, that we have to try and time this market and as you said that everything happens in such a short period of time and that's why it's time in the market that matters because you, you know you can be out of the market for a day or a week and you can miss the majority of the movement in it over a couple of years um, and then the last thing you mentioned that struck out to me was it didn't make sense to you that why would someone not want their own currency surely that's more inconvenient and again I've experienced something similar to that as well and it does sort of if you're if you're someone who just thinks I think you're like well this doesn't make sense for everything I know about the world. Like, why, why, why would someone prefer if I gave them sterling rather than euros when I'm in Ireland? You know, um, that's awesome. I was wondering if you had any insights because Bitcoiners in general, because they have such an overall understanding of the whole world, I think that's what Bitcoin does to you. Um, the cost of living crisis that we've been suffering over the last uh, 12 months and sort of how do you see that going? Do you see it slowing down? Do you see it accelerating? Do you see it reversing? Yeah, um, that's that's a tough one to gauge because you're basically, from the how I say it going point of view, you're basically um, we're all at the mercy of basically a few central bankers and the decisions that they take. Um, how we got here is just, I mean, very simply, it's just been there was just been a, a rapid increase in the in the money supply over a short period of time uh, dealing with COVID now. Um, you can trace, you know, why why are these problems? You can trace those back. I mean, you can trace them right back to World War One, even before that. But I don't. I think down that rabbit hole. That's that's a long rabbit hole. But um, or even nineteen at the very least, nineteen seventy one when we when we separated from sound money for the first time in human history. Actually, the first time in human history, we humans 
for the most part, has been separated from any form of sound money. Um, first time we owned a free floating fiat system, so not backbending. So the the system was never going to work. I mean, um, Jeff Booth described it. You know, it's a, an inflationary monetary system that requires constant growth and consumption on a on a world of finite resources. It was it, it's. It was never going to work from the from from the first day. So this is a, this is a fifty year field experiment, um, and it's just the the cracks are starting to show. Well, the cracks showed in two thousand eight. That was the signal. That was the signal to to be allowed of the system, um, and they didn't they'd just be allowed the banks and sort of reset everything. And so we, what what we're doing now is we're in a perpetual state of kicking the can down the road. But you can only kick that can down the road so far, and someone has to pay the paper eventually. So we had this rapid increase in the money supply to deal with COVID. Um, the other, the other way to play that would have been to let everything fail, and you would have had basically carnage. You would have had stock market crash, real estate crash. Everything would just would have completely. Everybody would have been come. There were mass insolvencies across the board. So that's not politically feasible. So you have to look for a way to you know put a plaster over the the wound and that they they basically printed an ungodly amount of money and then further from that you have the war in ukraine and you know that makes it harder to optimize where commodities go you know a whole you know russia russia is the most resource rich country in the world they have more resources than the next four or five countries combined so when they went to war with Ukraine, it, it, it's two things. It's it's a war with Ukraine, obviously. That's, that's a bad thing. But it's also an economic war with Europe because Europe is so reliant on Russian energy. And you can see those um, those cracks in the system. You know, it, was perf- it was such the, wor- it was the worst timing. Germany had turned off their nuclear reactors literally as the war started. And now... You know, gas prices and oil prices and everything through the roof, right across the board in Europe. And um, so, yeah, on top of that, you have uh, Chinese lockdowns. They're zero COVID policy. Chinese, basically, the factory for the world. They are the world's factory. They they make our things. Um. So they're the manufacturing hub of the world. They're also the shipping hub of the world. And that's locked down. So you have supply chain issues there. You have energy issues in Europe. You have a whole bunch of money in the system trying to get to different places. Uh, then that 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 rapid increase in the money supply, that broad monetary and fiscal stimulus, that causes asset inflation. And who is the people with the most assets? It's the wealthy. So the upper class and maybe to a certain extent the upper middle class have lots of assets they have the bigger pensions they have more real estate they have more stocks and those are the sort of assets that get inflated when you increase the money supply because that's where um you know lending restrictions get eased and the people with the best credit um just basically use that because they don't those those sort of people don't need money to get by every week so they're just taking that excess cash and and those they're taking those uh Easing lending restrictions, they're taking that opportunity and just buying more assets. So they're they're buying more assets with that money on the barn or against their portfolios to buy even more assets, and they're just leveraging up. And so when you have that asset inflation, people 
uh, with the most assets, they get wealthier. Where the people at the bottom who work wage to wage, not only do they not get wealthier, they actually suffer because they don't own any assets. They're inflating with that increase in the money supply, but also their wages are losing value in real terms because of inflation. How the higher inflation caused by that broad increase in the money supply. So you have this massive wealth gap being uh, getting increased every time there's that broad fiscal monetary stimulus that their wealth gap increases and so you have the ones at the top the rich getting richer and the, the poor you would on a nominal basis the poor are staying the same but actually in real terms they're getting um, much worse because their their wages aren't going as far relative to goods and services so yeah and I had a friend of mine on the phone to me yesterday and he was talking about like how much his car had gone up in value and like it sort of fools people because the car isn't worth anymore it's just that the currency has gone down in value and it's like yeah you can sell that old car and you might get a couple of grand more for it but then when you try and re-enter the market with that money you can you can't buy anything more than that old car you know you're net in the same position in fact the currency is actually less when you bring it into market and you try and buy something else with it because all the assets have gone up and it's your purchasing power that's gone down and that's a way that I think people who don't understand the money supply, which is everyone, including myself, uh, until I actually started to learn about it, you're fooled when, 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 when inflation happens to some degree because you see silly things like the, the value of your house going up and you think you're winning. But really the net cost of your living is, is, is what's going up. And, and I value it on, I think how you value your life is you value it on time because time is like time is the thing you should value and measure everything on. And, and if, as the world changes, you're losing your time, meaning maybe you have to work more or maybe you can't spend your time in doing the things you want as much. Well, that's how you're net losing in the game uh, as opposed to valuing. Like we use we use euros in Ireland or our pounds or wherever your currency is to measure how well we're doing. But it's a terrible measuring stick because, you know, as we know, it changes all the time. So it, 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 I think time is the best measure of, but I know time is very difficult to measure to bring it over into in, 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 into into the real world and you can sort of only do it by lifestyle but I yeah, guess if you, th- if you think about it, if you were born in the in the 50s or 60s you probably would have been born into a home where one one of the parents went to work and that wage was enough to, to buy a house sustain a living and the other parents stay at home mind, mind the kids today you have to be getting a hell of a wage to be able to sustain your family on one wage it's now both parents are working. Um, not only not only that, you probably have three jobs between both parents, or maybe you know two full time jobs and maybe a couple of side hustles, a couple of things that they're doing on the side just to get by. Um, so, I, the house prices now are out of reach for most most people, especially entering the workforce. If you're entering the workforce young, those house prices are completely out of whack now, and so the time. As you said, the time is thing that the time you have to put in now to get that same house that you could have got on one wage in the fifties and sixties is increased so much more because of the money we're using is so worth so much less. And um, we're working, working, working more, working harder, working longer hours, working extra jobs, and we're still not getting any further. And um, it's that constant. It's that as as he says, and um, as Robert Kiyosaki says, and Rich Dad Buddha, it's that constant rat race constantly on the wheel constantly spinning the wheel and you're not getting any further and that's what that's what it's like for a lot of people it's constantly week to week month to month where they can't and then 
people do get that wage raise. People get maybe the promotion or whatever, and they upgrade their lifestyle a little bit, and they're right back to square one because you upgrade your life, you also upgrade your costs, you upgrade your liabilities, and you're still back to where you were. You find yourself back to where you were. Where you're constantly now relying work or week week to week, month to month, and you can't sort of escape that rat race. And that's how that's how the rich escape the rat race. They they put their money to places where their money goes to work for them. You know, via compound interest, the broad increased money supply increases the asset value and they can borrow against that to sustain their living. So it's a very, very unfair system. Um, and I, I don't blame anyone. Like if you're born into wealth, you're just basically playing the cards you've been dealt. You know, there's nothing malevolent about it. You're basically just, you're, you're, play, you're playing the game. You're playing the game how, how you see it and you're playing the game. You're playing the game, the, the, that cards has been dealt, dealt to you. So, yeah, but it's it's very un, very un, very unfair system. It's something I detest. Really, it's disgusting. To 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 a degree, when you understand the system, it's easier to get ahead. So, like you could argue that if you understand the system, it's easier to get ahead. But it takes you, you have to change. So, my story is I used to live in a caravan. I had a pot to piss in. Okay, but the only way I changed that situation was I went into deep deferral of gratification. That I lived way under my means, not at my means, not close to my means, way under my means, so I could save and invest and grow. And that's what pulled me out of there. And as you said, though, as people get the wage increase, they upgrade their life. So they're, you know, we are guilty, I think, in the Western world of living too close to our means or at our means, rather than if we if we actually learn to live under our means, we, we could we could get asset rich and then we could have a much better fair enough, we might have five or ten years where we're not keeping up with the Joneses and we don't have as flashy a car as our neighbors, but then we get to spend the rest of our deck. We do that for a decade and we, then we get to spend the rest of our decades having our time back. And that's what, and that's an education thing because when you understand the system, it's like get asset rich and it's better, but to get asset rich, you have to defer gratification and, and, and basically save money. So live, live a good bit below your means. Um, I'd, I'd love to get into, into Bitcoin con and, and, and have you, trying to explain Bitcoin and why the world needs it. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. I guess, well, basically, you know, Bitcoin, I mean, it's an invention, but it's also a discovery. It's the discovery of absolute scarcity. So um, it's, and it's also a return to sound money. So I know a lot of people describe Bitcoin as, as digital gold. And that's a, it's a good way to describe it for people that don't understand. It's a, maybe you know, yeah, it's a baby step, but it's so it's so much more than that. It's a, you know, it's it's you can almost describe it in two ways. It's it's a monetary unit itself, but it's also a network. So, Bitcoin. I mean, short and simple. It's just uh, it's just technology like all money. So, but it's the best form of money that we've ever had. Very simply, it's it's it satisfies the two key dimensions of money, which is saleability of value across time and saleability of value across space, better than anything that's ever existed. Um, could, you, could you explain that, Con, just to someone who mightn't understand that? Yeah, so saleability of value across time. So basically, will the money hold its value over time or will it depreciate? Um, and a, a good example of that would be, you know, fiat currency is, is very poor. For saleability across time, but gold was historically better. Gold and silver historically better than, than fiat currency for holding its value because of its um because of their inflation rates. So 
good example is the the British pound. It's, it's the oldest fiat currency still in existence, like 300 and 371 years, 372 years, something like that there. But when the when the British pound was created, it was worth one pound of silver. So one pound to one pound, pretty much. Um, gold was was added to it later in, ter- in terms of the conversion. But essentially, if your family family's wealth on the day the British pound was created, um, if your family's wealth was tied up in silver, and you on that day that the British pound was created transferred your wealth into the British pound, you would have depreciated versus the silver to today by a rate of like 99.9%, it would be completely worthless versus what it would have been had it been held in silver. So, you know, a, a, a British pound today gets you like, or a pound of silver today gets you about 250, 300 pounds sterling. So, you know, that's a, it's pretty much worthless compared to what it would, that first conversion. But even silver would have lost your value as well over time because silver has, uh, an inflation rate of like 25% because of its utility. It's used in uh, used in engineering and um, technology and all the rest. So, but gold gold historically um, for five six thousand years was the the apex um, monetary unit for stability across uh, time. It has an inflation rate of one and a half like one and a half two percent. So very hard very hard to get out of the ground. It takes time, takes cost, takes energy, takes labor to get it out of the ground so that's um it's if the money is very hard to produce it's going to hold its value for longer over time because um scarcity is inherently linked to value you know um you know ox- oxygen is abundant but it's valuable like we, we need oxygen but we can't use it as a money because it's everywhere we can't use sand as a money it's everywhere um but gold is very hard to get so that for five six thousand years that was very easy to use as gold um it's, it's extremely durable as well you know you can't just it's very hard to destroy so gold was gold was a perfect store of value for generations for you know five, like i said five thousand six thousand years for holding your value but the problem with gold is it's very uh very hard to transport from a to b so we had run as we became a more globalized world as we started uh, trading further afield it became harder to you know if i was to transfer gold back in the day from from here to america for example i would have to load that gold up onto a ship pay security to watch it because it's a security risk someone to steal it uh, and then transport that for weeks across the ocean to to america so gold was very gold wasn't great for sailability across space sailability across spaces can i get the value from a to b uh, efficiently and that's where fiat chained. Fiat, uh, which started off as basically representative money, I, you, you know, paper, paper note certificates, you would deposit your gold or silver somewhere and they would issue you paper notes um, that you could redeem for your gold at a later date. But eventually, heading down the line, uh, government issued fiat currency, which was great for sale across space because it, it, you know, it's, it was more divisible than gold and it was easy to transport. Um, and then now with the credit and debt based system, it's basically just ones and zeros in bank accounts. That you, you know, it's basically a ledger system that you can that you can change. So, well, Bitcoin satisfies both better than both because Bitcoin has a hard, as you know, a hard cap twenty one million um, theoretical uh, supply. So, Bitcoin can't be debased. It can't be inflated away. So I know if I hold, like, just use big numbers here. If I owed 
if I owned one Bitcoin, I know that's one out of 21 million forever. That I, the, I will always have one out of 21 millions, you know, piece of the pie, really. So I know if I put away my money for generations down the line, let's say in 100 years, 200 years, that value is not going to bleed. It, you know, there's no, there's no economic energy loss in, in, that, in that money over time. And then for sale by cross Facebook, I can, you know, on chain, I can send it anywhere within an average 10 minutes. But using the Lightning Network, which is a layer built on top of Bitcoin, I can zip it to anywhere in the world with internet connection instantly. And that that's final settlement. That's bird to bird final settlement. Um, so yeah, Bitcoin's just it's just better money. It satisfies the key two key dimensions of money better than anything. Um, and I think anything that promises to do it better uh, really just you're, you're fooling yourself there's a whole load of other things other parts of the recipe of why bitcoin is better money than anything else um and the, and the world needs it because we need we need like i said um there's there's certain people you know, the way the world exists today is you can win or lose the lottery of birth you know we are born doesn't matter whether you're born into a wealth or into a working class if you're born here in a more economically developed country you've already won the lottery of birth because you're born in a part of the world where you have so much opportunity and yet you have a relatively strong currency than if you were born in kenya or if you're born in um venezuela or something like that there so what what bitcoin does is if we go to a bitcoin standard where we we're all using bitcoin it levels that playing field. It levels that equality of opportunity. Not, not. It won't. It won't level the playing field for equality outcome. You'll never get equality of outcome. But we can get equality of opportunity on the base layer of money because if everybody's using the same monetary unit that cannot be debased in every part of the world, your ability to save your time and energy is the same in Kenya, is the same in Venezuela, is the same in the United States, is the same in China, it's the same everywhere else if we're all using the same monetary standard. So Bitcoin over time eliminates that lottery of birth. It eliminates that need for people to, you know, and I'm sure you know of plenty of people here in Ireland that emigrate, you know, but where do they go? They go to the United States, they go to Canada, they go to Australia, they go to the UK. And, and even more so now, probably uh, the Middle East, Dubai and Saudi Arabia, where they're um, investing loads of money and building up. You never hear of anyone going to Venezuela. You never hear of anyone going to any of these countries with weaker currencies or with weaker opportunity. And, you know, that's that's something that over time, given enough time, will fade. I think people will not, you know, the real winners of a Bitcoin standard will be developing countries. They will spearhead this adoption. They'll be the big winners of this um, over time because they'll, you know, if you think of, if you think of some countries that have huge resources, massive resources, for example, in Africa, they're having, you know, they're getting their resources, their commodities and stuff bought for pennies in the dollar, being sold to the West. They can't, they can't lift themselves um, out of that poverty really because of the inflationary monetary system that we use today but bitcoin hopefully over time gives them a chance gives all these other developing countries a chance to really save their wealth and not have to rely on foreign investment from the west 
so they they can keep their resources they can pay their they can pay their people a, a wage on bitcoin hopefully that saves their value over time and space and yeah it just it just makes for a more equitable world where you have opportunity across the board yeah uh, and even on that like it's a solution to financial services to a lot of the developing worlds because it's a mobile phone you don't have to rely on a, another yeah like, a company coming in and go we're going to give financial services it's like well you don't need it bitcoin network will give it to you if you have a phone yeah i think 80 was like 80 percent of the world's unbanked or underbanked so especially especially in africa more people have as you said more people have mobile phones than new bank accounts so you know yeah it just makes this africa's going to be a huge winner in this really over time given enough time yeah um it's kind of interesting as well. I don't know how true it is because I haven't studied it in any detail, but I remember in a book I read just about money, it was talking about how Africa ended up in the situation it's in is because their money was manipulated like years and years and years and years ago when they were using glass beads and the Europeans were able to create the glass beads, whereas they had no ability to. So the Europeans would come in and because they could create the money and the, the locals couldn't, they could literally buy up all the assets. And we see like hundreds of years later, the effect that the bad money had when a better money came about and uh, and perhaps we see that on the opposite now is where they get their revenge if they embrace the good money perhaps yeah. it'll be forward in 200 years it'll be like well the, the developing worlds embraced the better money and that's how they they were able to uh, regain control or turn the whole situation around it'll be interesting to play out we a lot of yeah a lot, a lot of unfortunately like a lot of slavery actually started with um with hyperinflation of those of those places um as you said that europeans came in um hyperinflated those local economies and when like when you have nothing left when you have no assets you have no um money to save in because it's been hyperinflated right? the only thing left you have to give is your labor so you know unfortunately yeah that's that's how a lot of that played out um funny you mentioned look that's a uh, bank of zimbabwe 10 billion dollar note <laughs> that's that's the state of some of their currencies now like so um yeah imagine like imagine you saving and there here's another example actually um venezuela venezuelan bolivar these are venezuelan bolivar from december 2018 so the denominations are actually similar to europe the uh, five tens uh 20s 500s etc Two years later, December 2020, 500 million, 200, 200 million and 1 million Bolivar. You know, over the period of two years, what you would have considered pretty much life savings, you thought you would have been set for life, is now just printed on a note and you can maybe get a coffee with it. So that's, that's I keep that as a reminder. That reminder that the money we use is just, is like we are at the mercy of central bankers and like literally in a very short period of time if your wealth is held in that money it can be literally blown up overnight it can be made worthless overnight and that's a constant reminder for me anyway yeah that's awesome in the um like i suppose what all, all humans are seeking is is somewhere scarce because we value scarcity scarcity is our life our time on the planet and then our, our economic energy we need to store it in something scarce and we look for you know what is the scarcest thing ideally it's money but the thing we call money currency it doesn't fulfill that so the people who are educated understand and they look for scarcer things like properties or like stocks or like uh gold 
Um, but 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 like if if Bitcoin, as you say, is is I can't remember what word you use, but ultimate scarcity or yeah, it's absolute scarcity. Absolute scarcity, correct. Well, well, that is where the majority of of our of our energy will go because we're all just seeking scarcity to 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 store our value in. Um, and uh, for me, like that's a big step for 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 beginners. It's just like you know, take them to it's digital gold. It's does everything gold does. It just does it better. Just like Spotify is better than a CD. But uh, that was pretty awesome to 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 take it a little bit further and, and see that as we both know. Bitcoiners know it's it's yeah and and um I'd say you know we don't we don't want we actually don't want money you know we don't want little green pieces of paper we don't want digital tokens we don't want bars of gold you know those aren't you know we want money for its prospective exchange utility we want we want the things in the future that we hope that money will buy you know like, yeah like a like a nice car or a house to live in pay for a wedding a holiday whatever you know those are the things we actually want we don't want little pieces of green paper with some dead president's head on like those aren't the things we want so basic money is just basically a technology that we that we store our value in and we hope we'll keep its value long enough so we can get things we actually want and need and and crave so that's basically all it is it's a shared fiction that it only exists for humans you know it's a shared fiction that we created so that we can organize and specialize and coordinate in large numbers because ultimately if if we didn't have that, we'd have, you know, the barter, the, we'd have barter. Basically, you have apples, I have oranges. How do I get your apples if you don't need my oranges? You know, that's only one of many problems associated with barter. But yeah, money basically is just this technology that we have thought up, that we have created to basically act as this intermediate vessel to hold our value. And that is basically, that is all it is, really. Lovely. Um, I'd like to get into talk a little bit about ethereum to piss you off a bit maybe <laughs> well I, I i think i think you're going to be able to provide some good insight so just as i was setting up the podcast i get my comments and i, I have a comment there eat moving to proof of stake will kill bitcoin and, and i hear this all the time uh, and i'd love you to try and maybe just explain the difference between and i know jesus we could do a whole podcast on this but take take it as deep as you want or you don't have to talk for hours on it but maybe the difference between bitcoin and ethereum because I don't see them as the same thing, um, and and big and maybe maybe touching on proof of stake and proof of work. Yeah. I said, well, the thing about Bitcoin is Bitcoin is it's it, Bitcoin is the discovery. It is the invention. You know, it's that is you know, you can't rediscover the wheel really. So, Bitcoin, Bitcoin versus Ethereum, well, Ethereum. I, in my belief, is just. Um, I think. Of, I think it's just a scam. It's a. You know, it, it's a. It's an un, It's an illegal, unregistered security that was offered to uh, a small portion of people in a pre-sale, and um, it's centrally controlled. It's. It's inferior technology as well. It's so. It's they see the thing about, the thing about um, Bitcoin is. If you want uh, a digital currency, you have to choose two of three things. You have decentralization, you have security, and you have scalability. Now, Bitcoin went for decentralization and security at the expense of scalability on the base chain. It can't scale. That's why it builds on top in turn in you know layer 
layer two technologies like Lightning Network, those are things that are used to scale Bitcoin. But on the base chain, it's very simple, very, you know, it's it's it um it's decentralized and it has it's a it's a secure network and it does three things reliably, which is send, receive, store value. That is it, send, receive, store. Those three things are all you need on the on the base chain. Very simple, very reliable, very secure. Ethereum, on the other hand, went for scalability on the base chain. Now that's an that's an issue for many reasons because that has remember you can only have two of the three on the base. So if they're prioritizing scalability at the base chain, they're sacrificing decentralization and they're sacrificing security. So whereas Bitcoin is a trustless system, it removes the trust from its, you know, in in today's fiat system, you have to trust your bank. You have to, you know, there's a lot of trust involved. With Bitcoin, there's no trust involved. You can verify everything for yourself if you're on your own node, for example. With Ethereum, there's trust involved. Ethereum, you have to trust that, that first of all, you can't, me and you couldn't run a full node, even if we wanted to. You can run like a, a node that goes back. You can pay like, uh, still an extortion amount of money, but you can pay to run like a node that goes back. I think it's like a hundred and something blocks or something. So yeah, you can't even see the full. You you can't verify for yourself if transactions are being changed way on down the chain, way back in you know. So there's a lot of trust involved. It's very centralized. You know, it's basically a, it's basically a company of the Ethereum Foundation, like and. They have a marketing team, um, for example. Um, so it's, there's a lot of trust involved. You can't verify if the Ethereum you're getting has been spent before, or you know, you can't. There was a there was a there was a DAO hack way back when, I think 2016 or something. They just simply reversed it. They just simply stepped in and reversed the the hack. Now you you might think that's well, that's a good thing. That means the hacker didn't get away with all the money. That, the only reason the hacker got away with all the money is because the Ethereum was an inferior monetary. There's no hacks on Bitcoin. You cannot hack Bitcoin. You cannot get in. That's an impenetrable network. You can hack exchanges. You can hack all these other things. You can hack all these things built on top, but you can't hack Bitcoin itself. Bitcoin is the most secure network on the planet. And Ethereum is just simply, it's just this, like, it's just this thing that's riding on the coattails of, of Bitcoin success. Um, and I think the, it, it, if you look into the, someone on Twitter actually posted like a it's like a roadmap of of what Ethereum looks like really and all the all the things involved in it. It's the most complicated like if you think our financial system is complicated, it's this thing is just an absolute mess to the point where you can you, can, you especially for a novice you wouldn't be able to tell heads or tails of what's happening on the network. Um, and all these other protocols that's built on the Ethereum network, you don't know how levered up they are. You like, if you put a dollar in Ethereum, you don't know if that dollar is being counted two, three, four, five, six times on all these other different things, which bloats up the volume. Now, it actually came out there the other day that that's how Solana was operating. Solana, which is another altcoin, they were bloating up their volume by double, triple, and quadruple counting every dollar that was put in there because of all these other things that's built on top of Solana. So basically, they were counting. If you put a dollar in Solana, they were counting it up on all these other chains and basically bloating out the market cap. So, um, you 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 have to wonder how much value is really in Ethereum, and um, if they're if they're uh, bloating up 
how much value is contained in Ethereum. Uh, and then you have to consider, you know, the fact that all these people who bought in the pre-sale, these venture capitalists, Banker, J- I think JP Morgan actually funded some of it. Why, why were they buying in a, a pre-sale early? And what the, what are they going to do with that either? Are they buying in pre-sale before it went so they can hold it for 20 years? No. They're, they're buying that pre-sale so they can slowly bleed it on to new common retail participants. They're not going to dump it immediately because that would crash the price of Ethereum. But every time you get those spikes, you can be guaranteed that some of those people, those insiders are slowly releasing that Ethereum. And eventually it's going to be retail participants that get hurt. Um, It's doomed to fail, like most other altcoins, I think, in my opinion. It's doomed to fail eventually. Now, in the interim, as we're still in this inflationary monetary system, it makes sense for a lot of people, you know, with smart contracts and DeFi and all the and the NFTs and all the rest, because those things are being built on Ethereum network at the minute, and maybe not so much on Bitcoin because Bitcoin Bitcoin moves slow. Bitcoin moves slow. It's slow. It's methodical. It takes its time. It makes sure everything's right. Bitcoin's had zero downtime. Bitcoin, no, nothing in the history of the internet has 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 had as much uptime as Bitcoin. It has complete uptime since the day it was created. Um, no network breaks, no reversal of transactions, none of that there. So it it moves very slowly, very methodically. Make sure that every that there's no breaks in the system, that there's no nothing that can go wrong. Whereas Ethereum is pretty much the opposite. They move fast, they break things, they they fix it, they put a bandage on it, they go again, they move fast, they break things. There's constant um, hacks, constant. Uh, Reversal of transactions or um, things collapsing on on the Ethereum network, so it's just a it's just a real mess. It's not what the world needs. It's now if you're an NFT artist, for example, you might think, well, Ethereum's the place to be, and that's you know that's fine for you. If you're a novice and you don't understand what you're doing, and all you're thinking about is I want more money, and you're trying to make a wee bet and gamble, work away, that's fine. But if you're looking to secure your value for a long term and hedge against the inevitable collapse of the global fiat system, you can only, you know, Bitcoin's the only choice. It's the only thing that's going to come out the other side, um, in my opinion. So, and as you said, yeah, proof sake for proof of work. Um, well, the thing about proof of work is just um, decentralized consensus mechanism that requires numbers on network um or sorry it's it's basically the use of energy to maintain the network that's basically what it is you're the bitcoin miners they're using a tremendous amount of energy trying to solve these blocks so um people think it's a like a real complex puzzle it's it's not really they're just there firing out random guesses um like millions per second or whatever and that takes a tremendous amount of energy so Every ten, every, once a ten-minute block is solved, and we're on to the next block. All these miners around the world are just firing guesses, expending a huge amount of energy. So when you know, when a miner wins that block and gets that Coinbase reward, that block reward, you know for certain that that it would it has taken a tremendous amount of energy. It's taken cost to get that money into the system because money shouldn't 
you sh money should not be able to be created for free. There has to be a cost. Otherwise, we just have fiat currency. You know, fiat currency is created from nothing. Proof of stake, you know, that that is not, you know, proof of stake is essentially what we have in the fiat system. You know, the rich get, the rich get richer. If, if you have a, a whole bunch of um, Ethereum, if you're a big massive, if you're a big stakeholder, you're you're more likely to win blocks than other um, people with less stake. So basically, the the ones with the most stake will probably get the most rewards in the long run, and they'll have the biggest say over the network. So proof proof of work is the only way to have a decentralized system. You can't have a, a decentralized proof of stake system. In fact, I'd, I'd argue that. Bitcoin is the only truly decentralized network out there. Um, and that that comes from pretty much all the ingredients that went into the creation and discovery of Bitcoin. The, the whole recipe of how it came about, it was a spontaneous thing. Like even the fact that the the the, uh, the founder is anonymous and he disappeared after it, that's a huge leg up. You know, every other altcoin has a founder or has a company behind it or something. That's a single point of failure. So, you know, the whole, you know, even if you think about like what is what what is what is a blockchain? What is the purpose of a blockchain? You know, the blockchain is just a a way to decentralize the 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 method for validating transactions. You know, you think if you think about the the fiat system as it exists today, it's centrally controlled. You know, you 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 make a payment from A to B, and it's the banks that validate that transaction. That's a centrally centrally controlled system that validates those transactions. What Bitcoin, what the Bitcoin time chain does, or the Bitcoin blockchain, what it does, it it uh, decentralizes that method of validation. So it separates that validation process and takes the trust out of the system, and it does that uh, uses a consent best method for decentralizing the process of um, validation is a consensus algorithm that depends on competition. That competition involves risk and reward. That competition is the mining competition for the block reward. The block reward is the, the reward. The risk is the, the, the cost, the, the energy you have, to, you have to pay energy bills. If you're a miner, you, you know, people think you're a miner, you're just using electricity, maybe as like, your your home electricity bills no the their electricity costs their electricity bills are huge they're massive they're they're big massive um industrial size projects like so the the reward is the is the token of value bitcoin the the risk is the the energy cost uh the and the, the competition is these these miners all competing to get the next block awards so you need you need a token of value. Therefore, you if you're if you have a token of value, your 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 money. So, if you don't have the token of value, then you don't have the risk and reward. You don't have the reward that, that the competition depends on. You know because they're all trying to to get this reward to compete, and that keeps them playing fair. So, if you don't have the token of reward, you don't have the basis for competition. If you don't have the basis for competition then you have to centrally control validation. Uh, if you have to centrally control validation, you, you don't. there's no need to have a blockchain because it's not decentralized if it's centrally controlled. So the token of value, the, the basis for uh, the competition, 
which keeps miners playing fair. Because if, if you're a miner and you mine a block with an invalid transaction or someone that double spended, for example, you're just going to get kicked off the network. So you'll have expended all that energy, all that cost, which is um, associated with proof of work. And in the end up, you'll have been kicked off the network. Your block will have been invalidated and you'll have no, you'll have gained no advantage and you've been locked out of the system. So you would have, there would have been a huge economic cost on yourself because of that proof of work. That proof of work takes cost, it takes energy. So all these things combined creates the perfect decentralized ledger. If you take one thing out of it, it doesn't work. It's a, it's a perfect, it's just a perfect um, engineering masterclass of human incentives, you know, and greed, greed whether people, whether my, some of the miners probably don't even believe in Bitcoin, they don't, maybe, maybe they're just in it because the margin of profits are so great. And that's fine because when they come into the network, they're actually strengthened. The more energy, the more hash power in the network actually increases the security of the network because it, if you want a 51% to attack the network, for example, you have to match, you have to get 51% of the hash power. Not only that, you have to actually sustain that for a long time. So let's say 100% of the hash power is every, every miner today. If you were um, someone who was coming on to attack the network, every time you load up an extra miner, that actually increases the hash power a little bit more, which increases the security, which increases the cost to attack the network. So it's a perfect, perfect system. Um, it, I mean, that doesn't mean that Bitcoin is perfect. No, no money will ever be perfect. There's, there's always trade-offs, and obviously the trade-off that I mentioned was scalability. You know, you can only have three. You have decentralization, security, or scalability. Bitcoin sacrifices scalability for those two very important ones, which is decentralization and security. Um, so, yeah, proof of, proof of work is the only way that you can have a decentralized distributed ledger system you can't have a decentralized distributed ledger system without a token value. So I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, that's de decentralized voting and let's decentralize all these other things and not have a token of value. It's like, well, what incentive will, if you're a node runner on one of these other blockchains, what incentive have you got to play for? If you're not, if you're not competing for a reward, why would you play for? Why would you not, you know, want to exploit that for your own gain? Um, if there's no, ramifications for not playing for it. and that's what that's what's brilliant about bitcoin you have this competition for that reward it keeps everybody playing for it and it keeps the, the network safe you don't have that in ethereum you don't have that in other proof of stake systems you don't have that on uh, blockchains that haven't got a token um, and so I, the way i see it is all these things that people see that maybe is useful on ethereum like nfts or something if if there is a marketplace for that, if the world wants something like that, that will more than likely be able to be built on other layers of Bitcoin, because you want you, you want your foundations to be strong, and there's not there's no foundation stronger than the Bitcoin base chain that that um, that base network, like I said, puts security and decentralization ahead of everything else. So you have this strong foundation, and you need strong foundations if you want to build complex things on top. You can't build complexity on the foundations. You can't build a house on sand. You know you cannot build. Yeah, you have to have solid bedrock. You have to have solid foundations if you want to build complex things on top. And that's what that's what Bitcoin, Bitcoin's only thirteen years old. Or is it, yeah, thirteen years old. So it, 
it's it's moving slow and it's building these strong strong foundations and if there is to be complex things built on top like all these side chains and space chains and layer two technologies and all these other things that are being built now they will be built on bitcoin the bitcoin will be the network on which they'll be built on eventually and people have this idea well you'll have bitcoin for your savings account and you'll have ethereum for the smart contracts and you'll have dogecoin for your currency it's like no all that will be built on the strongest foundations because if you can't corrupt the foundations you can't have corruption if something breaks on bitcoin on, on a, like if uh if a lightning transaction breaks on bitcoin it doesn't affect the base chain you know you, you can settle it you can settle that dispute up here like closing channels and stuff but it doesn't ever affect the base chain the base chain is a solid foundation on which everything else can be built it, it's almost simple at a, yeah. really, as a, at a really high overview when you see how it works it just works out and i think you mentioned it just incentives like regardless of where you fit in to the bitcoin network whether you're you own bitcoin or whether you mine bitcoin <coughs> or you build on it everything is just out of human incentives and it's programmed into us it's our survival that we all operate out of self-survival and it it just beautifully engineeringly net leverages all that um to create this 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 sort of system of a uh, system system to store value across time um i'd like to um, I'm, I'm confident on Bitcoin's success and I just see it eating our world. I don't know the timeline on it. Um, most of the things I understand, I'm, I'm like, yeah, well, I don't see that as stopping Bitcoin. But do you see any things that could stop Bitcoin or affect Bitcoin or cause Bitcoin to fail? Or is it just unknown unknowns, something that we've never seen before? Yeah, well, there's, there's always room for black swan events. You can't ever attribute 100% certainty on anything really so yeah. there's always that room for an unknown unknown as you as you say a black swan event but but there is things that bitcoin needs to sort out there is bit things like in uh there's well if you want to get really technical there's uh, the 32 or sorry the 38 bit integer problem which or no, 32 bit integer problem which is a problem in 2038 um but bitcoin uses unsigned integers uh, I'm going way into the technical parts here, but that that is going to be a problem for Bitcoin. We'll be dead. I think it's twenty one oh six, the year twenty one oh six. That's going to be a real problem that they're going to have to overcome. It's going to affect the the time stamping of Bitcoin. Um, yeah, thirty two bit unsigned integers. Um, that that that's a problem that they're going to have to fix maybe with a hard fork. So you would imagine by 2106 would more than likely be on a full Bitcoin standard. And um yeah, you you could communicate a hard fork. Or maybe, maybe, maybe they don't maybe they fix it with a soft fork, maybe they fix it with um a bug patch or something. But you know, I'm I'm not really worried about that. Well, for starters, because probably I won't be alive, but um I'm not really worried for Bitcoin about that because Bitcoin attracts the smartest minds in the world. Some someone will figure this out maybe in the next couple of years. You know, it Bitcoin attracts the smartest minds in cryptography, in computer science, in yeah, economics. Look, look at how the world has changed in the last 80 yeah. years. Like, you know, I think we're gonna figure out any problems. Yeah, that's it. And, and then well, one one problem that is sort of one problem that's that needs to be figured out probably in the next 10 years is lightning network scalability. So just in theory, in theory, and it is only theoretical, 
the Lightning Network as it exists can do 60 million transactions per second, which is like, I think Visa's like a thousand. So it's 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 already so much better than anything we've, we, we, we can even dream of. But the thing about Lightning Network, because it's a layer two thing, it, it can centralize, it can has has privacy concerns and um, there's there's a there's a problem there's if there's a lightning network called renee pickard follow him on twitter he he's been very vocal about um lightning network scalability problems he's trying to he's a lightning network developer he's trying to figure a lot of these problems out um with channel balancing there's going to be problems with channel balancing um you know so if you have if you have a globalized world that's operating on a lightning network for example you can't have payment channel failures you can't have those downtimes and so so there's things to be figured out with lightning network there's things to be figured out with space chains and side chains um like fediments for example you know uh community custodian solutions there's a whole there's a whole 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 rake of things that need to be figured out on bitcoin layer and layer two solutions and other side chains and stuff but the bitcoin base chain I think is it's perfection. Like um, other than that, thirty-eight or thirty-two bit, bit integer problem. I mean, there's there's nothing. People people always say, well, what what about after twenty-one forty when there's no block reward and how you know we'll trans we'll 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 definitely be on a Bitcoin standard by then. And the constant uh, the the incentive will not only be to verify transactions and get the transaction fees, which will be astronomical because how you know the world's value will be will have fit into 21 million bitcoin so each transaction you know if you're competing for transaction fees that's going to be huge but not only that we will have all our value in bitcoin so the incentive to verify transactions keep the network safe will be to hold the value of the world so that's not even that's not even a problem um and if, if everybody's value is tied up in Bitcoin by 2140, people say, well, well, if, if lots of miners come off, off the, the network by 2140 because there's no block reward, that opens up to attack. Well, who's going to attack the Bitcoin network if the whole entire world's value is contained in Bitcoin? Who would attack the network then? There'd be no incentive to do it. You'd be, you'd be shooting your nose to spite your face, you know? It, it it would make it doesn't make economical sense to attack the network at that stage and i think by then you have massive industrial size mining um on a huge uh, a huge scale well, that goes in that goes in the a deep rabbit hole of what the world will look like on a bitcoin standard um that would be very question if you want to roll into that yeah <laughs> well we, well the world as it exists is an inflationary monetary system where Assets rise in value because of the debasement of currency. So, you have you have the co- constant and predictable fall in value in currencies, and scarce assets increase in value relative to those currencies. On a deflationary monetary system, which what if if the world if the world like Bitcoin's not deflationary itself, you know it's not going to go to twenty million to nineteen million to eighteen million or anything like that. It's twenty one million Bitcoin. But the thing about you're, you know, if you self-custody your private keys and you die or you're in an accident or you go into a coma or whatever, or you go to jail and or you lose them, that Bitcoin's gone. Lost. You know, it's that Bitcoin. It's not, it's not, it's not essentially, it's, you know, it's always on the blockchain, but. Yeah, but it's, it's uh, not a network. It's not yeah. liquid. 
yeah, so it's not liquid, so it's not moving. That, that those coins essentially become dormant. And if you lose your private keys, you're essentially making a donation to the rest of the network because the purchasing power relative to goods and services of everybody else's Bitcoin that they have control of will increase. So in that sense, it is deflationary. It's slight, slightly deflationary. And a deflationary monetary system is a complete shift. It's a, it's a different world. It's a different mindset. It changes human behavior. It changes consumer behavior, for example. Uh, and that has ramifications on a lot of things. One thing it's going to have ramifications on is as- everything, every other asset. Every other asset, theoretically, will lose its monetary premium and pro- probably all of it. So real estate markets, $350 trillion. Uh, Stocks and bonds are 120, 150 trillion. Golds like 12 trillion. You know all these, all these monetary assets are going to get sucked slowly and eventually, suddenly into Bitcoin. Eventually, because on a deflationary monetary system, the money outperforms everything else, given a long enough time period. Now you'll still have, like you'll you'll still have, real scarce. Real estate, for example, like if you have a penthouse overlooking Central Park in Manhattan, that's highly sought after. That might outperform the money given a short or to medium time period. Um, but if you reduce the monetary premium, let's take real estate, for example. If you reduce the monetary premium on real estate on a deflationary monetary system, there's no incentive to ever buy real estate to hold as an investment because it will always underperform the money. So Bitcoin will always, Bitcoin will, you know, my house, my house now, right? Let's say, let's say my, let's say, let's say in ten years' time, my house is worth, you know, not just throwing out a, a number, not point one Bitcoin or something. I can expect ten years later to be for it to be worth half that, and ten years after that to be worth half. You know, everything in Bitcoin terms is always decreasing in value. It's always been everything's always worth less Bitcoin given that, a long enough time period. Is that con? Do you think while we're in in the adoption phase, and and, and will that slow down in the future? Like it's it's easy to see now that of course nothing's going to keep. Well, not of course, but yeah. So not, nothing the, keep up with Bitcoin. The price in Bitcoin terms is dramatically shifting downwards now because we're in this adoption phase, and you can you can assume that once we get to full market saturation, and every Everybody's using Bitcoin. There's no other fiat currencies in the world. Let's say we're all using Bitcoin. That yeah, that slows down. Um, eventually, that's but it still goes the, the same direction. Long enough time frame, it still depreciates over time. What that means is you don't have to go and get a mortgage to, to buy a house because that doesn't make sense for the lender. Um, why would I, you know, why would I borrow? Let's say let's use Bitcoin. I'll just use big big numbers to keep it easy. Why would I borrow one Bitcoin? to buy a house um, worth two Bitcoin if by the time that's paid back to the lender, my house is worth 0.5 Bitcoin, you know, uh, there's no, there would be no incentive to ever take out a mortgage or take out a loan to, to buy those assets. And I think what happens over time is, well, technology is deflationary in nature itself. So technology should make the prices of everything less over time anyway, but that doesn't happen because of, it's incongruent with the inflationary monetaries and they're button heads together. So eventually you would have everything would lower to its cost of production. So the, the value of a house would not be 
there would not be this massive monetary premium on the house, which is what we have today. Houses are store of values. You would, ha you would have a house be reduced to the cost that it costs to make the house, so the, the, the cost of the bricks, the cost of the, the wallpaper, the cost of the windows. Those raw material costs will essentially be the cost of the house, maybe with a slight premium for the labour. But that's, that's basically it. You wouldn't have this massive monetary premium on top of it. And what that does, that, that solves a huge problem that we actually have here in Ireland, which is the real estate problem here. You walk down any street, you, you throw a dart, throw a dart at Ireland and you walk to that street and you will see two let, two let, two let, two let, dilapidated houses, um, uh, high streets with empty, uh, uh, empty shops, former shops closed down and people can't afford the rates and stuff. And what's happened is a load of big, massive investment companies are just buying up whatever real estate they can get their hands on. They don't, they actually don't care if it's occupied or not because it's, Going to, they know what's going to hold their value in fiat terms over a long enough time frame. So they don't, they don't care if anybody's in the house renting. They don't care if anybody's using the shop. They're just buying up those buildings that they're buying up that land because it protects their value from what they see as uh, you know risks in other assets like stocks and risk on assets and stuff. Yeah, they're seeking scarcity. Yeah, they're seek exactly. They're seeking scarcity. And the thing is, easy money chases scarce assets in, a, in an inflationary system. But scarce assets chase hard money on a Bitcoin, on a deflationary monetary standard. So all that monetary premium gets sucked into the money and eventually given enough time. I, I envision the future, like if you, you come out of university, 18 years, 19 years old, maybe you do like six months work and you can buy a house immediately, just buy it outright because the cost of the house would be so low relative to, relative to wages because the money itself, the money that you work for holds value um, and it sucks the monetary premium from everything. That'd be so, hard. That'd be hard for people to figure out. But I could, I can get there. And the only way I can get there is because our productivity over the last fifty years is like we're ten x more productive. One human is. So let's yeah. say my grandfather, you know, ten years of work before, or maybe four, I don't know, before he bought his first house. Um. But now, let's say I with technology. I can be 10 times more efficient. I can create 10 times more economic value than my grandfather could have. So therefore, I might not have to work for 10 years to buy a house. I might only work for two years to buy a house. And, yeah. and that's a big stretch. That's a big change in our world. It, it's, it's, it's actually not hard for some people to think. It's not too long ago. Like, if you came back oh, from... It, I don't mean it's impossible to happen. I just mean in so, terms of how our world would change. Yeah, like it's, especially for young people, it's hard to envision because they think they see houses these days almost out of reach. You know, they're, yeah. but, but it's actually, for some of the older people, it mightn't be, you know, for, if you're in your 70s or 80s, it mightn't be too hard to figure out because I, it, actually, if you came back from World War II, you only had the in, in America, for example. You only had a year's worth of wages bought you a house after World yeah. War Two. So, so that's it's not too long ago that that was possible to just work for a year and buy a house outright. Um, it's just oh. all the, the the excessive money printing from that time. Yeah, fear has fear yeah, bloated the the monetary premium on every asset, and Bitcoin is people describe it as a black hole of values. You know. It is the black hole that will suck all this monetary premium from everything. Maybe not. Maybe not all of gold, because there'll just be there'll just be people that will hold gold as a doomsday scenario. Like I, someone I can't remember who described it as gold bugs are pessimists, and Bitcoiners are optimists. Yeah. Uh, 
Goldbugs hold gold um, as a hedge against the complete catastrophic collapse of the global economy. Because in that, if if Bitcoin fails and real estate and everything collapses, gold's going to be very useful in that in that um, that phase. Um, but Bitcoin is optimistic. Bitcoiners are optimistic that we can transition to a deflationary world, Bitcoin standard, and fix the problem of money, fix the money, you know, fix the money, fix the world. Yeah, it's awesome. But we were actually chatting in in one of my groups uh, this morning about it, and and the text I wrote: the world as we know it thinks in fiat terms. Like so, we measure everything in 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 fiat. So even really smart people, we were talking about Larry Fink and uh, from. BlackRock. BlackRock, how he done a 180, like a <laughs> smart person can can get caught off guard and a dummy like me could figure it out before him. But I'm I'm very skeptical. If you yeah. if you're very if you've have you read the news recently, BlackRock is uh, joining with Coinbase. Yeah. Um yeah, that that I that smells attack on Bitcoin to me. Um if I think you know what is BlackRock's incentives? BlackRock's incentives are to keep the status quo. They are the biggest asset manager in the world. Nine, They're nine the most invested in the fiat system. Yeah. So it's it's like tread carefully. Larry may not be be the white knight that we think he is. He could be, who knows? But it, it doesn't matter. The point of it is, is that even really smart people assess things through fiat. Yeah. Bitcoin continues, but if Bitcoin continues to succeed, it will change how we think as a civilization. As Jeff Booth says, you can't fix a system from within that system. And I'd say it's difficult to recognize the faults of the system when we're using that system to measure the new system. And Einstein said, you know, doing the same thing over and expecting a different result or doing the same thing over to measure something different is insanity. And and, and this is why I believe Bitcoin is going to catch a lot of wealthy people out. They're just not going to see it coming because fear promotes consumer consumption. You know, fiat standard promotes consumption, instant gratification through debt and short term thinking. But Bitcoin promotes more thoughtful use of resources and delayed gratification and longer term thinking. And like that in itself, how we humans as a civilization think, the shorter we think, the higher our time preference, the more barbaric we act. And then the opposite is true. The longer our time preferences, the longer term we think or the lower our time preference, the more civilized we become and 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 that's sort of my take on how bitcoin will change how the whole planet as a civilization thinks if it continues to be yep. successful and sucks aren't kills people one by one by one by one and you you don't even have to wait till we get the bitcoin standard to see no. that you, you cannot if you buy individual uh, yeah if you buy bitcoin today and you let's say let's say you buy bitcoin today and you wait a couple of years and it's up you know 200 percent you that that you know there's a saying you don't change bitcoin bitcoin changes you you know every time you make it from that point onwards every time you make an economic decision you will have that in the back of your head that 20 quid that i'm about to spend on this thing that doesn't really mean anything they don't really need could otherwise go into bitcoin that's going to appreciate by 100 200 given enough time frame whatever that's uh, still still sort of thinking fiat in terms of the percentage increase but what I'm saying is, given enough time frame, the money is going to hold its value over everything. The, everything's going to decrease in value over time versus Bitcoin. So as you said, that lowers your time preference. Every That means every single economic decision you make, you do it like 
you make the choice that do I really need that? Is that essential? And if it is, you spend, you know, people think, I, I, for example, people think I don't spend my Bitcoin. I don't sell my Bitcoin, but I'll spend it. I will spend If someone is willing to accept Bitcoin, I will absolutely spend, I'll spend a replenish, but I will spend it because, of, you know, that incentivizes um, merchant adoption, incentivizes other people to, to use it. But I will make that decision. And like, for example, I'm actually, we're actually, I'm actually saving for a wedding for next year. But um, fiance came to me, showing me uh, the price of flowers. I'm just thinking, oh, that's a lot of Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a lot of sats that I could order. Like, could I do a wedding without flowers? I could, she can't. So it, unfortunately, it is an essential um expense but i'm just saying every day i'm starting to think in bitcoin terms now everything everything i'm pricing i'm pricing in bitcoin terms and it's like as you say it's that lowering your time preference it allows you to plan for the future as well if you know that your value your value is going to hold value or your, your money's yeah, going to hold value every every decision that you have to purchase something every single thing when you have a money that can hold its value over time it'd be or or as you in the present we have a money that increases in value over time then the decision comes do i really need this thing like do i need it today do i have to have it yeah. and if you have to have it, then you get it but if but then it's like well not really no i'd rather like give up work in 10 years and spend 40 years traveling the world and having the crack and, that, uh, and that, 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 that given enough time that creates a true free market economy it creates a very efficient economy because if you're coming to market with something that's that people don't need and don't want and they don't want it and they don't need it and they don't buy it, you fail as a company. And if people think failure as a company, that's a bad thing. It's actually, it's actually not. It's actually a good thing. It sends a signal to the rest of the market that the thing that this company was bringing into market or the, the way that they were doing it in wasn't right. It wasn't efficient. It wasn't needed. Or maybe, maybe it just wasn't time. Maybe they were ahead of their time or too late to whatever. And someone else, someone else sees that and thinks, well, I can do that better or I can make yes, that product better. And it just, yeah, that's how, and we we basically progress now. If you look at it today, what what do we have? A very inefficient market. Very, um, we basically have socialism for a few companies where they can't fail; they're too big to fail, and that creates a very inefficient market. Where, um, here's one for you: um, the UK government spent all that billions and billions on PPE that was inferior. It was inferior, and it was just tossed to the side, waste of money inferior product um and but uh, you know we have so many zombie companies so many companies that basically are just surviving because of the constant monetary printing they're not bringing anything that the market needs to market they're not you know if you're a value investor in today's market you're you cannot pick a single company that you can think or act or operating efficiently or operating well because even the ones that are operating well, they're so out of whack with the valuations, like Apple and Microsoft and all these big companies that do bring great products to market. But they've got a monetary premium on them. I monetary see. premium. They they hold they hold lots of assets that appreciate. They they are the big benefactors of this constant uh, asset inflation as a result of the 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 increase in the money supply. So when you when I, I think when I try and look at something, I try and look at it in terms of there's there's a, there's a saying called Bitcoin denominated exit liquidity. 
So if you value, for example, if you value Apple stock, the Apple market cap in Bitcoin terms is like 44 million Bitcoin. But we know there's only 21 million Bitcoin that theoretically. So what, what, you know, something has to give there. Either we create more Bitcoin, which we're not going to do, or that company is overvalued in terms of Bitcoin and it's going to be worth less Bitcoin given enough time frame. So that's how I came to the conclusion of only owning Bitcoin, even versus other cryptocurrencies in the long run. Is Dogecoin worth 500,000 Bitcoin? Not a chance, not even close. You know, it, is all these other companies worth more Bitcoin than there is in existence? No. So given the only thing that makes sense to own over a long enough time frame is Bitcoin. It's the only thing that makes sense now to own for a long, long run other than maybe your own home because that has utility you actually live in it. So that's, that's how I came to my conclusion. Bitcoin only, the only thing worth owning for yeah like don't get me wrong if you want to take if you want to take pot shots and gamble and you know if you want to back a horse if you want to throw money into something and hope it appreciates over the course of a month a week a year whatever it is you know it's a free market you know how you if, if, you, if that's what you want to do you want to take on that extra risk that's fine that's not that's not for me i actually used to i used to used, used to gamble used to play roulette used to Used to back horses, used to back football teams. I just don't. I just. I just don't bother with it. I just don't see the point in it. That's just me. You know, I'm thinking. Well, yeah, I could put a. I could put a tenner on that, and I could go to hundred quid if if I get a footy accumulator up. But I can just buy some stocks with it. <laughs> It'll appreciate it over to, over more long enough time anyway. So and that's what I do. DCA every every week. Just let let the. You know, if I finished the week with more shots than I had the week previous, that's that's all that matters. The price is just, it's just, I don't even think about it anymore unless I'm, I mean, unless something big's happening, I'm looking, uh, you know, if it takes a 30% correction, you know, here we go. That's, we're, we're, what can I sell to get some extra money? <laughs> and then uh, if, if there's big dumps, I'll take advantage of those. I'll, I'll lump some by some dumps maybe. But other than that, yeah, just DCA and accumulate as much as I can. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Uh, it's been a great conversation, Con. Before I let you go, though, I'll ask my final question that I, I asked for a bit of fun. Um, what would you speculate on on the price of, of one Bitcoin in 2030? You can give me a bearish, but I will push you for an answer. Yeah. <laughs> Given well, given that time frame, you're really asking me what fiat worth in um, terms. Yeah, yeah. We'll assume we're still on a fiat standard in them. Um, but I always maintain that I think Bitcoin will get to a million, a million um, talking dollars here. I think it'll get the million dollars before it gets the block height one million, which I think is 2028. So I think it'll get the million by, by the end, and. You have to take into consideration what what will what will other consumers think? By, like people think people think this is there's still people that think this is a bubble that it's you know had maybe this double pump and it's coming back down and maybe it'll it'll level out maybe around fifty k or something or its previous all time high and maybe it will hit a hundred thousand and it'll just bubble around. There comes a point where you have there's given enough. You know, we've only had really two cycles where there's been media attention. There was media attention in the big run-up in 2017. There's been media attention, obviously, with Tesla and MicroStrategy and everything adopting Bitcoin. But you have to wonder, in the next rally up, considering that there's been two media, two massive media things, and you, we now have a country adopting Bitcoin, 
what will the media frenzy be like when it blasts through 200k 300k and 400k maybe falls back down to 200k and people again like they always do signal oh this is it this is the end this is big, this is it it's it's crashing to zero yeah it'll be like fill me once fill me yeah. twice fill me four times how many yeah, times yeah it's like it's like how many times is it going to take how many times is can the media print fud how many times can people ignore it before they think right i need to start getting this and you can already see this is already starting to happen in a lot of people's minds and uh, in terms of big players nadig or they have a lot of you know and then the whole black rock coinbase thing it's like the, i think as an attack on bitcoin i think they're going to try and issue a lot of bitcoin that they don't have in terms of they're going to rehypothecate a lot of bitcoin and i think they're going to try and suppress the price but you can't you can't do that with bitcoin given a long enough time frame because it's a bare instrument that that you can take custody of immediately so Given 2020, 2030, I think once we once we bust through a million, whenever that is, I think that it's just it's going to be run away. I think it's going to be a gesture straight up. So, I mean, probably 10 million, 10 million, 2030. I think we're blasting, blasting through valuations. I think that's when we start hitting an inflection point in adoption. Once we hit an inflection point in adoption where adoption starts going vertical, things get extre- things will get extremely... People think Bitcoin's volatility will actually lessen over time it's it's not it's actually it'll lessen in the interim medium term but once we hit that inflection point bitcoin's volatility will spike similar to uh the weimar germany episode and uh, the paper uh, weimar market was like the slowly gradual increase and then it just went hyperinflated where as the the volatility actually increased as it as it died and i think that's what you're going to see as fiat heads towards its death you're going to see this increase in volatility you're going to see like it, it could it could go to 10 million down to 1 million back up to 20 million down to 15 million you know it could be all over the place as we approach inflection inflection point because there's going to be people that just do not know how to how to value it um as people lose faith in the currency valuations are going to come completely out of whack and everything so i think it'll be an extremely volatile extremely chaotic um time frame i think the, the next decade will be extreme volatile extremely chaotic there's going to be a lot of wealth destruction there's there's there is no way there if we can stretch the fiat system out longer that's better because um it allows us more time to educate people and get people on board get people on the arc and safeguard them if it, for example if the fiat system were to crash tomorrow you know look at the amount of people that would be left with pretty much no bitcoin you know there's like less than one percent of the world probably understand what it is so it's it's our incentives to hope that the fiat system continues long enough so we can get enough people on it but i just don't think it will i think people once enough people start figuring it out there'll be a rush on bitcoin there'll be a rush to get as much bitcoin as as you can get and that'll increase the volatility it'll actually also add to fiat's demise a fiat's demise will be exacerbated by having a a lifeboat to jump to something else to jump to like if there was no bitcoin if there's no bitcoin the world today would be screwed because gold would be the obvious thing to jump to but you couldn't it's there's so many paper ious of gold and there is actual gold that you wouldn't be able the price wouldn't it'd be I'll be the worst case scenario. I imagine there was no Bitcoin. Holy freak. But um <laughs> yeah, so by people people think this this is going this fail system going on for decades. I think we're already starting to see the the death rattles 
the sort of the we're between a rock and a hard place. We can't raise rates to tackle inflation meaningfully. We can't have unemployment reach high enough thing, uh, high enough point. They, they need to kill. They need to kill demand in the market, but only up to a certain point where, if an unemployment gets the long enough uh, or high enough rate, and delinquencies and defaults start happening on homes and you know because real estate is the it's three hundred and fifty trillion. It's the majority of the world's wealth is held in real estate, and already, already you're starting to see those things tip over in China. China's fifty trillion. China. China real estate alone is is the biggest geological, it's a bit geographical, the biggest geographical store of wealth in the world is Chinese real estate. And it's already starting to tip over, obviously, with the the Evergrande contagion and all that there. So you can only kill demand and you can only push for a recession so far as once the once real estate starts tipping over and once unemployment starts going up, they have to pivot. They have to pivot and they have to throw an ungodly amount of cash at the system. And I think it and to a point that'll make the COVID stimulus look like a look look like you know uh, pocket money. So how how many more injections of crazy amounts of monetary stimulus can the system take before people lose faith in the currency? And I think one more. I think one more because Japan looks like it's ready to have a currency crisis because it's initiating yield curve control. The euro is on the brink because it's they're, they're already having to enact yield spread control between the north and south between the countries in france and germany they're having to basically punish them to pay they're basically robbing peter to pay paul they're punishing them to save greece and italy i think italy i think italy will be the first country in europe to revert back to their old currency the lira because they, the the euro is killing them so um Credit default swaps in Canada are out of whack. Greg Foss all, uh, has always been saying that they will, they'll be the first G7 country to collapse. I think it'll be Japan. It could be Canada and it could be the Eurozone. So you're probably going to see the first real crisis of a G7 country um, in I don't know how long. Turkey, Lebanon, Argentina, they're all on the brink. They're big, they're big nations, with massive populations, big economies. So how long how long can the system go on? People like to think decades. I don't see how I don't see I just cannot see how it can make it out of this decade still intact. And I think Bitcoin will be the thing that accelerates. Um it, it's gonna be the signal. I think the next the next real big run-up will be the signal to people, right? I need to get some of this. And then if it comes back down, if it has this has a crash and comes back up even further again, I think people will just say, okay, that's it. It's Bitcoin. This is it. We need to own Bitcoin. Need to own only Bitcoin. Nothing else makes sense to own. And I think that's when you have a. If you think of a, a bank run, people run to the banks to try and get their money out. I think the opposite will happen, where people run to the exchanges to try and get as much Bitcoin as they can get their hands on. And at that point, you know, you'll have exchanges. You know, there comes a point when exchange goes, when exchange says to itself, "Well, if everybody's trying to throw fear at me to get these this Bitcoin." Do I really want to? Do I really want to part ways with the Bitcoin? Do I really want to accept Lebanese pound, uh, a Turkish lira, a US dollar, uh, uh, a euro, a, a hyperinflating Japanese yen? And eventually, exchanges are just going to cut off. They're, they'll start off by cutting off developing currencies, and then they'll start cutting. They'll start off by cutting off pretty much every other currency, and that's when you have pretty much a lockout where people can't get Bitcoin. But everybody's trying to get Bitcoin. 
Now you think of that in the word you think of a word where exchanges aren't selling Bitcoin. What other ways can you get Bitcoin where you have to entice other people who have Bitcoin to sell it to you? And that's where you'll see massive arbitrages. You'll have you might see some exchanges listing it at 10 million per price, and you'll have another exchange listing it as like 13 million per price or for per unit. And so you'll get you'll get this massive volatile arbitrage um where you have to you if you're a millionaire, for example, you'll have to offer millions above what the stated price is to entice someone to give you give you Bitcoin probably um you'll probably have to meet them in person, give them cash or something. I don't know, but um because there's like 56, 57 million millionaires in the world. There's only 21 million Bitcoin. So there's like less than half of a Bitcoin per millionaire. So it's at what stage do those millionaires, the billionaires, the big tech companies, nation other nations start flooding into this Bitcoin thing to try and get as much of the as they can. That's why the most important thing now is to educate people, is to get the people, um, your average, your average citizen, average Joe, who's you know, most people don't have time to keep up all stuff. Most people don't have time to go down the rabbit hole. Most people don't have time to look into the macro world and what's happening in macro. Because, because they're on all their time. <laughs> they're, they're they're on the rat race. They're they're constantly working week to week, month to month. They can't think of anything else. They want to make sure they can put food in the, on the table for the children, keep a roof over their head. That's their concern. They don't care about digital tokens. They don't care about distributed ledgers. They don't care about the macro environment. But it's it, that's why it's probably the most important thing is education, educating people what Bitcoin is, um, and even if just gets just get off zero. That is the main message. Just it's more risky to own none than it is to own some. I can't tell you how much you need to own. That's up to you. That's up to anyone. But just don't have zero. Get off zero. Get a tenner's worth or something. Um, get you know, if you have a bit of spare change and you're not going to do anything with it, there's there's apps where you can just um, DCA and you can just it just buys automatically. It takes tenner out of your wage at the end of the week or whatever, and you just slowly accumulate. And if it turns out this Bitcoin thing crashes and fails and doesn't work out, well, you'll have lost like tenner a week or something. So it's not you know. If, if you don't have time to look into it, if you don't have time to go down the rabbit hole, just buy a little bit, buy an amount that you can afford to lose and leave, but just have some, just don't have zero. That's the only, that's probably the main message you would say, just educate people, but just make sure they don't have zero. Yeah, good advice. And, and I've sort of been saying that as well. It's like, it's only going to get harder to buy Bitcoin in the future. So accumulate some now and, and, and like that, forget about it, lose the wallet for a decade and hope you don't need it. Obviously, as Bitcoiners, we don't want, you know, most Bitcoins are like, oh, I want Bitcoin to go really high numbers. But if it goes high numbers, the world's going to fall to shit and it's not going to be a nice place to live anywhere. So you're trying to balance that out. You're trying to educate people. And that's why I think every Bitcoin, it's all our duty. Once you understand it and it does good by you, you know, it's your duty to teach someone else about it and show them. Because if you understand how fiat has screwed you for your whole life and then you start to understand money and you learn Bitcoin and life became better. You have more time to do things that you want to do and spend more time with the people you want to spend it with. Well, why not show other people that? And because uh, the bottoms up movement, the one thing I did think about Con, as you were chatting, I didn't mention it, but because I'd go to the conferences and I'll go to like, I'm going to Bitcoin Amsterdam, but most of them are, are crypto. And when you go there, it's just a hive of, of money and activity and networking and marketing. And it does never, there's never a Bitcoin stall of it. And sometimes I'm like, like, what is going on here? 
But then I'll talk to people and I'll go up and I'll, I won't name names, but I'll talk to people who'd be pretty senior up in Irish companies and other companies and, and they won't come on the podcast because they're like, oh, I can't talk. But they'll go, oh yeah, I think it's all about Bitcoin. And I'm like, why the fuck are you, what's all this stuff? Like, why don't you, you're organizing this thing. Why don't you have a Bitcoin stand? And it's just, and again, it's, it's nothing bad or evil. It's we all operate out of self-interest. And you know, if I have a company, I can make much more money promoting something different. But then I'm like, Bitcoin doesn't need it. It's just going to eat the world anyway. Yeah. You know, and, and in the interim, we'll all, you know, take our share and, 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 you know, leverage other things. But I don't think Bitcoin needs the it needs top down marketing. It's bottoms up marketing that it gets from individuals who who get it and understand it. Yeah, and one thing probably didn't talk about is um, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's energy in terms of it incentivizes the build out of renewable energy. But um, because that's that's one thing. If you're in government, you're looking the first. If you t- I mean, if you type in Google, Bitcoin. The first thing you're probably going to get is a foot article about its energy use, for example, and about its boiling the oceans and all the rest. And that's if you're if you're a policymaker in any country, and that's now you you don't know anything about Bitcoin, but you people are asking you about it, so you decide to Google it, and the first thing that you're being bombarded with is things about energy usage and it's bad for the environment and all this here in a time where climate, you know, climate. Um, the climate crisis is at the forefront of every politician's mind. It's the thing that you see in in, in the the media all the time. So they even even if they don't know anything about Bitcoin, they immediately have a you know a reflex to you know shield themselves from that and sort of stay away from that, even if they haven't read in into it too much. They just don't want to be a sh- they sort of they almost take a neutral position. Um, as a defense mechanism where they don't want to just in case there is something to do with bitcoin and its energy use they don't want to be associated with that in case that hurts them in terms of their you know esg goals and all the rest yeah, the, you, the irony being that if they actually got behind it they'd probably get more political support than any other means that they would have but, and look i'm not a, i'm not a client i'm not a climate scientist i don't know anything about that there but i do know about incentives and i do know about um, the the cost. If you look, I'll just take us here anyway. But if you think about renewable energy, think about solar and wind and all the rest. Those are they're they're extremely cheap. Um, Bitcoin miners are incentivized to go where the cheapest energy is. Of course, they're extremely they're extremely cheap, but they're they're not reliable. You know, solar's not solar's not reliable at night. Uh, wind's not reliable. Uh, when it's not reliable when it's not windy outside so you have different uh, it's very it's a very unreliable source and the the energy grids are very you know the energy grids we have today like i think it's like 40 percent, maybe even more than half is wasted or stranded so in the interim as we transition bitcoin miners actually are the flexible load that can tap into the energy grid and account for those lower levels of demand so when you have these high demand areas, Bitcoin miners can shut off. And um, when you have these low demand areas, when that, that energy is going to the grid no matter what, but if it's not being used, then it's essentially being wasted. But that in uh, in those low demand areas, you can turn on the Bitcoin miners. They'll take on the the energy from. They'll take on that energy and monetize it 
and so it means that no, it means no, well, not no, you'll never get 100% energy. There'll always be some wastage, especially in transport, but you'll get efficient energy grids where the energy we're using is all used because the, re- the, the part that's not being used by the population is monetized in the form of Bitcoin. And what that does is that allow, like the reason why we can't build out, you know, the improvement of the energy grid and the, the build out of all this renewable takes a huge cost. It takes lots of infrastructure, it takes lots of cost, and that's unfeasible unless you have Bitcoin miners. If you have Bitcoin miners, you can monetize, you can you you can you can essentially transition the entire grid. There's 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 one I was looking at. Someone sent me um I can't go I, I don't I don't know the, the technical details of how it works just yet, but I was reading about it. Off the coast of Hawaii, in that in that tropical region, in the trop- right across the world, there it's a, it's an old technology. It's like a hundred years old. I think someone came up with a theory of taking the cold water from the depths of the ocean and the surface water at the, at the tropical region, and there's like a twenty degree differential between the the two depths, and you basically that heat difference, um, you have there you can you can build a you can build like a refrain a refinery. You can build sort of pumps that you, I think you use what is it, liquid ammonia or something. And it, what it basically it basically creates power from the difference in, in water temperatures. But the reason why that can't be built out now is because it, it's a such a costly. Um, you know, I think someone calculated you would have to be paying fifty cents per kilowatt or. Which is nobody's going to pay. Nobody's going to pay fifty cents to a dollar per kilowatt hour of energy. It's just too costly. The operation too costly to build. The energy is too costly. But that's where Bitcoin comes in because Bitcoin miners can reduce that cost because they'll take they'll take the the access cost. They'll and they they'll what they'll do is they'll drop the they'll drop the cost of of the energy. They'll drop the cost of the operation because in the interim you can. Uh, monetize it you can use the bitcoin to fund the project and if if you can create that that's free and abundant it's not exactly free it'll be free over time but that's abundant energy for the entire tropical region was like which is like a billion people so you'd be able to create create abundant energy for a billion people in the tropical regions just by doing this one thing and then you know if you take solar and um hydro and all these nuclear and all these other things and you monetize the low periods of demand that allows for the build out of massive infrastructure for like bitcoin bitcoin solves the if 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 you think there's a climate crisis if you think there's an energy crisis if you think there's an energy grid crisis bitcoin literally solves all of those things you know we say fix the money fix the world but we're actually serious it fixes most things it can fix most things in the world and there's a whole other, there's a whole various other things that have fixed us as well, um, especially around incentives and consumer behavior and stuff. But yeah, like, if you if you believe if you're a politician and you're thinking Bitcoin is energy intensive or it it wastes too much, it doesn't it doesn't actually it doesn't use enough energy. It needs to use more energy. You know that is the takeaway from that. It needs to use more energy. There people think you know there's like a uh, carbon output or something of Bitcoin. Bitcoin. The only the only waste of an of a Bitcoin miner is heat, 
and that, and you can use that heat. You can there's there's a Bitcoin miners in Amsterdam. They use I think it's hydro a mixture of hydro and something else, renewable sources to mine Bitcoin, and they have all their Bitcoin miners facing into a greenhouse, and that heat is being used to, to grow orange tulips, and they sell the orange tulips. So they're using every aspect of the energy that the Bitcoin miners are using. So there's actually no wastage. So Bitcoin needs to, over time, Bitcoin needs to use more energy. It needs to monetize the build-out of renewables. It needs to monetize the build-out of all these projects that allow for free and abundant energy that would otherwise be too costly. And I think over time, given enough time, and this is another thing on a Bitcoin standard, if in 50 years' time we have free and abundant energy because of the improvement of energy technology, if every citizen is getting free energy directly to their to their homes, maybe you get a, a certain amount every day or whatever. Imagine, I imagine a world where houses are built with Bitcoin miners, a, a bit a one Bitcoin miner installed in the home for two reasons. During the time in the day when you're using the the house, the electricity, the TV, and whatever, and all the rest, the the miners off, the 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 Bitcoin miner is off. And when you go to bed and sleep at night, you turn the Bitcoin miner on and it does two things. It mines Bitcoin. So if you think of maybe small community, we could have small community pools. You know, you could have, you know, the way you have mining pools. So they all go towards a pool and the, the block rewards distributed equally among everyone in the pool. I envision a world where everyone has a Bitcoin miner and you have basically what's called almost like a postcode lottery where you would have let's say I'm here in Armagh, you would have a, the Armagh mining pool and maybe every two or three years our mining pool actually wins a block and suddenly we get all this, you know, you, you load up your wallet someday and oh, frig, we want to we a block reward. Or you can solo mine and never win it, but I don't think that'll, I think everybody, I think we'll, I think we'll you know, people say that mining pools are very centralised, there's big massive mining pools. I think over time those distribute and sort of level out and you'll have country mining pools and provincial mining pools and you'll have sort of community city-based mining pools and i think given enough time frame if everybody has a bitcoin miner inbuilt into their own home and they're getting free sources of energy you'll have this sort of postcode lottery of uh, mining rewards being distributed to all different pools around the world and the second thing is the heat in the heat in your home could be if you have a bunch of asic miners that heat can be used to heat your water it could um heat your home during the winter or whatever so there's you're using the energy that's not being used that's going to the house and you're also using the energy that's coming out the, in terms of the heat of the bitcoin miner so that's the potential that's potential a potential world that we could live in in 40 50 years and that'd be a very nice world to live in free and abundant energy for everyone that'd be pretty cool yeah most most definitely amazing insights um gone it's been great to chat to you today um uh is there anywhere where people could follow you or your i'm work? usually usually quite active on twitter um conscience and 80 at conscience and 81 i think is my thing yeah at conscience and 81 yeah i'll stick it in the notes uh Con, thank you for your time today it's been awesome to come on and uh and, and go deep and uh and you, you, it was it was uh, really insightful and learned a lot and uh, hopefully we can chat again uh, in the future.
but uh, I'll chat to you just after in, in the, the after show. But for now, I'm going to sign out and say, Danny out. Thanks very much, Con. Cheers, Danny. I'm great.